This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Today on The Gender Card, we delve into the complexities and wide-ranging experiences of women recovering from depression. Griffith University's Professor Simone Fulliger and Dr Adele Pavlidis have just released a book, along with their colleague Dr Wendy O'Brien, called Feminism and a Vital Politics of Depression and Recovery. Their creative analytic writing approach uses a variety of ways to explore why women report much higher rates of depression than men, yet gender is often ignored in medical and therapeutic responses. As they write in their introduction, we invite readers to engage with this book as a co-constituted process of reading, writing through visceral connections, guts, brains, hearts, skin, words, images, surfaces to explore how gender matters. We all feel the weight of another woman's suffering that remains invisible, unrecognised in ways that matter deeply. Their years of research are shining a light on society's hesitancy to talk about gender as a crucial factor of depression. Simone and Adele, welcome to The Gender Card. Thanks. Thank you. Great to be here. Simone, would you like to start proceedings? I would. Thank you, Nance. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians on the land upon which we are recording, Griffith University, the Gold Coast Campus, the Yungumbeh and Kumbameri peoples, and acknowledge that this is unceded land, and we appreciate being here very much. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on the publication of your book, Feminism and a Vital Politics of Depression and Recovery. Can you tell us a bit about, this has been quite a journey getting to this point, hasn't it? This is really the end point of many years of research. We really wanted to do something different with this book. We we felt compelled, and by we, I'm talking about uh, my colleague, Wendy O'Brien, who can't be with us today, and also my colleague, uh, Del Pevlevis, who joined us for writing the book. So we wanted to do something different, more creatively, with thinking about the way in which we were moved through this research process by the women's stories and complex experiences, and then working with different ways of writing, so kind of more poetics of understanding depression and recovery and bring that feminist way of knowing the world and disrupting and thinking differently to the kind of thinking and writing that we're doing. Because this started as an Australia Research Council project, so you've moved from there into this more expressive way of communicating your your findings. Yeah, because we're we're very interested in drawing on feminist methodologies and new materialist ideas about bodies and how we bring our bodies and our minds. So we use the term body minds to to think through depression and recovery as experiences that are profoundly gendered. And so it's quite hard to write about that if you're using standard academic language. The body we felt um, needed to push through because depression, you know, the weight of depression, even the way we use metaphors, indicates the way in which it's very much an embodied experience. So we wanted to really explore that in terms of the way in which women talked about 
those complexities and how they felt about depression and what those gendered pressures were, and then also what helped and enabled their recovery and the kind of moments of joy and pleasure and you know, what was that process that enabled that change to happen? So interesting that that connection between the the body and and the mind and, and emotions. It's not really talked about in traditional approaches to de- treating depression, is it? So thinking that of selves as more than just bodies, more than just minds. We are social, cultural, historical, gendered, hormonal, biological, physical phenomena in the world and it's that multiplicity of things coming together so it might be gendered expectations as well as hormones as well as family dynamics as well as economic systems all of these things coming together in these tightly woven knots that are then manifesting as bad feelings because i think uh, most people would agree now that we're much better at talking about depression as a society, aren't we? I mean, there's a recognition of depression now that I think wasn't even there really a decade ago, certainly not a generation ago when it was quite shameful to talk about it. But why have you then made this focus on gender? What we're not often hearing in the public conversation is that depression and anxiety are profoundly gendered. So we've seen in the national statistics that women uh, report high rates of depression and anxiety and particularly young women and we've seen that become worse with COVID impacts isolation and economic disparity and violence in the home all the kinds of gender drivers of inequality really play out in relation to women's experiences of health and well-being it's not really rocket science when we think about that impact. So why aren't we having these conversations in policy circles, in therapeutic contexts, and more broadly? Because, you know, as feminists, we like to talk about how the personal is political, and that our personal feelings, those naughty, bad feelings, actually tell us something about the socio-materiality of our worlds and the political uh, forces that shape how we think about ourselves as as women or gendered beings and what we do in relation to the expectations that govern and shape our uh, behaviors choices feelings i just need to you know continue on with that and in in response to what you said nance about how we can now talk about it more and the rise of diagnostic cultures as well and not that i'm you know against getting a diagnosis when it's useful But we need to remember when we're talking about this, it's not just, oh, there used to be a stigma and now it's not. There's also those economic power relations and other power relations that are gendered when you think about who are benefiting from the increase in diagnosis and medications. I mean, the the rates of prescribing of antidepressants, I think Australia is like second highest in the OECD nations of prescribing antidepressants. And again, um, I have used antidepressants at various times in my life and I use them now at, at particular times. But this notion that you have to have a diagnosis and that, that you become this uh, different subject that is ungendered. It's usually a very uh, non-gendered idea of the subject, you know, a depressed subject or a a schizophrenic subject or all these diagnoses that make up people 
in ways that don't acknowledge the gendered dimension of living in this world and being a body in this world. Why do you think gender has been overlooked in that traditional medical approach and and even to to this day? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important question to be asking and we can think about the broader kind of patriarchal context of our society and the way medicine has been brought to bear on treating and diagnosing women's bodies and how much or little women have had in agency in that process. But also historically, if we think about some of the early ideas about uh, mental ill health, we go back to ideas around hysteria and that was attributed to the womb uh, dislodging and moving around the body, which caused women to experience these strange behaviours. So medicine tends to be very focused on individuals and um, biological processes. And, and now we see the rise of neuroscience. So we have a very strong discourse around mental illness being about chemical imbalances. And there's been a lot of critical debate about that. And amongst psychiatrists themselves, they say, you know, there's much more than biology going on. And we that's a reductionist view if we just hold on to that. But there's a lot of service provision and funding and research in the science community tied up with it, that knowledge production. So, you know, we talk about those broader forces that shape how we come to know what depression is. And that was the kind of jump-off point that we had for the project when we thought we're going to talk to women about their experiences. But we we were aware that everyone's response is going to be shaped in some way by these dominant ideas. So we went in by asking not what is depression, we are asked, how did you come to know that you were depressed? So we opened up the complexity of their experience. It's really a quite a different approach. Simone, as you mentioned before, you, you come from that feminist perspective that the personal is political, but also that really shows that women's emotional distress is often really discounted in this conversation, isn't it? And the reasons for that, that seems to be what you're trying to get to to the bottom of more. Yes, and with, you know, Simone mentioning that opening question, I came to the data fresh. You know, I didn't do the interviews, so I was looking through this data and I just had my second child and I noticed that that question of how did you come to know that you were depressed, so many of the women talked about uh, that it came after the birth of their first child. And that, you know, they went to the doctor and they found out they were depressed, <laughs> um, which is interesting considering that they'd just been through birth. They told stories of not having support, of their partners not being supportive. I mean, we know how stressful having children is. So I think that that was interesting in really that very tightly woven gendered knot of motherhood that came through as well. So you can really see these points um, where it was the entanglement of gender, not just biology or chemistry, that was at play. And I think also we really noticed in the women's experiences across the life course how the, the therapeutic response was very inadequate to you know really underst help understand their experience. So we heard a lot of stories about clinicians of various kinds who just didn't listen to their experience and didn't acknowledge that gender context. And you know that that had enormous damaging effects. Not being heard, having to tell your story multiple times, um, or just having your life circumstances and, and inequities reduced to an individual problem, medication or CBT can solve. 
And, you know, I think, of course, there are many fantastic practitioners out there who have a broader understanding, but we saw, heard so many stories of really limited responses and particularly in the public health system. So, you know, that is a major cause for concern and we need to have much better education training around gender awareness. So how did you explore the complexities of those stories in the book? So we asked, um, opened up questions about women's experiences and enabled them to kind of tell us more than what we call the cover story of depression recovery, which is the kind of diagnosis and treatment. We then asked more about life circumstances and relationships. And of course, we heard, you know, life histories of childhood abuse being a, a significant issue, many inequalities that are intersectional, so relating to income, Indigenous women from migrant backgrounds, cultural diversity, disability and chronic other chronic conditions, sexuality and age too. So thinking about ageism. So much diversity there, but really women spoke about those nuances in their lives, which are often so missed in the medical system. But we also wanted to open up that question about, okay, so what, what also helped in your recovery? You know, what, what, what were the, some of those moments that you think are significant that maybe your medical practitioner didn't notice or you didn't even tell them about? And we did hear a lot of stories about women going off medication and <laughs> telling their doctors that they were still on it and just doing a whole lot of things that they wanted to do because they didn't feel heard. So that's when we started to really draw out the stories about creativity and active embodiment, whether that was organised sport or, uh, you know, walking, um, all kinds of practices, yoga. And then also the dimension of connection with nature, whether that was being at the beach or time out in the garden or what have you. But it wasn't just those practices in themselves. It was how those practices enabled their body-mind experience to shift and also their relationships with other people and places so it wasn't just about them as individuals. I think that it might be worthwhile for us to maybe read one of the poems or at least some of some of one of the poems Absolutely. at this point to give a mm. sense of how we used a performative orientation to writing through a poetics of recovery to, to disrupt and diffract and to work with the rhythms of recovery. So Adele, um, was this a poem that one of the respondents wrote? or This particular poem that I will read some excerpts from was developed by Simone in the writing process using uh, the words from their transcript but shaping it in a way that really uh, highlighted the, the rhythm of this person's story of recovery. So uh, the title is Rejecting Recovery, Disruptive Hormones Calling Out Bullshit. So when I'm not coping with things, I happen to become depressed. That's both a personality thing and it's a biological thing. I considered the term recovery. I would reject it, in fact, for my own path. Recovery makes it sound like you're never going to have to deal with it again. And look, Shit happens. Yeah, life's going pretty good at the moment, but another day I'm going to wake up in the morning and think, bugger, I don't want to get out of bed. Ha! Whatever's going on, it's just too yucky. I want it to go away. The really good thing is that it will go away. In my experience, it's learning how to live, live with what I've got, live with what comes my way. My experiences of depression have revolved quite heavily around hormones one way or another. The first time I was really aware of being depressed was in puberty, probably on and off from about eight, 13 to 18 years. 
1974, my parents' house was flooded. Mum wasn't coping very well. She makes everyone feel uncomfortable. As long as everyone around is comfortable, she copes. My body was changing. There were expectations to fit in from girls at school. I resisted right from the word go. I didn't cope very well at all in my teenage years. I felt tight in the guts. I slept poorly, dreamt bizarrely. At 18, I was thinking, who the hell am I? Trying to establish myself in a work life, finding out who I was as a person. It was difficult to express your spiritual life, to stand up to chaps who were so convinced that they were absolutely right about God. Women should keep their places and all that bullshit. When I married, I went from being an independent, very unpregnant woman working for good money to someone who's new in town, feeling rather like a ship in full sail. I was so bored out of my scone. I have never felt as isolated since then. It was highly emotional stuff and the hormones, completely disruptive. I was terrified that they take the baby away from me. I think it just passed with the hormones and I started to relax a little more. I didn't have that death grip. The fear didn't turn up quite so often. I fell pregnant again and the happy hormones kicked in. Then I lost the baby. I found out about postnatal depression by reading. We moved again, got involved in another community. They were very open and very welcoming. A big part of getting better, I think. I've done the postnatal depression thing. Now, guess what? It's menopause. I ask myself now, are you particularly unhappy about something in your life? Are you fed up of being treated this way or that? What's your body telling you about what the hormones are doing at the moment? My life would have been very, very different if I had realized that I could actively dream about my own life at school and imagine what it might be like. We expect the mother identity in women to take care of everyone and everything before themselves. And we gave that woman a pseudonym of Pam. and She was 44 at the age of her interview. So many interesting things that come out of that. Thank you for, for reading that, Adele. I think the first one that I'd like to explore is just that that concept that goes through of recovery being an ongoing process. That's quite different, again, to that traditional medical approach of perhaps trying to cure something. Yeah, we really wanted to trouble the concept of recovery because it is often used in ways that imply a linear progression of the self, that you will do something, whether it's medication therapy or or other practices, and then you will be fixed and you will be returned to normal. But we actually argue that normality is part of the problem for women. There's a paradox here. If we return to normal, we return to the conditions that generated depression in the first place. We need to blow up the notion of normal and we need to be questioning what those normative expectations are of women and women from all different backgrounds. So we wanted to really pull apart recovery and we understand that it also is um, a contested term in the broader kind of mental health service provision area and there's you know fantastic work being done by activists around you know recovery recovery in the bin movement which recognizes the importance of people who use services having a voice and that recovery needs to be self-defined and contested not just prescribed as a one kind of model fits all so understanding the nuances of recovery is really important and is what we're doing we're saying okay what are the kind of gendered practices and opportunities and spaces and safe spaces that are emotionally supportive and enable women to experience themselves differently, what can we do to create those spaces? And that's within and beyond the clinical settings. So, you know, how do we create our sports spaces and our fitness spaces to be welcoming? What kind of um, creative spaces can we have? 
you know, how can we have um, instructors and service providers who understand these nuances around tentative engagement in practices when women are feeling so uncertain about themselves and nurture and encourage them to come and get involved and also respect diversity that we don't women are not all the same and we have incredible diversity and that's really important part of the the puzzle of recovery it is a bit of a paradox as you mentioned isn't it because there's that intersectionality that you you discussed and that there are differences but the common themes that expectation that that women find impossible to meet, basically. That that seems to be a common story. Yeah, and I think if I can just add that a number of the stories, particularly the women who'd been through depression, like episodes three or more episodes of depression, and had kind of figured out that they felt a lot better when they were able to reject, refuse the imposition of gender norms on their identities and well-being. And that may have been in relation to family obligations, marriage or relationships, sexual orientation, but also workplaces and friendships. And so there was a lot of renegotiation of those gendered expectations. And it's making me think of two examples. One was a woman in her 60s who really hadn't done any physical activity much since school, where she had a pretty traumatic experience of physical education, which is a common theme. And she, you know, her neighbour decided to to join a gym locally and and dragged her along to the gym and she was complaining about how terrible she thought it would be and she didn't want to go. And anyway, she ended up going to the gym and actually really enjoying it. And she surprised herself. She was so shocked. She laughed at how shocking this was to her that she actually (laughs) was in the gym uh, with all these young people looking fit and she was enjoying lifting weights and just doing things with her body that she'd never done before. She said, oh, the neighbour stopped going and and I just kept going because it really changed how I thought about myself and opened up these different connections with other people and, and places that made her feel like she had a different sense of connection and belonging. I'm just hearing Simone talk and thinking about this notion of recovery. You know, we wanted to not think about it in terms of recovering some you know, authentic self. And instead, it's this creative process and bringing creativity and new ways of thinking to this really persistent problem of, you know, bad feelings. So, you know, looking at the data and thinking about the creative ways that women articulated their experience and found a sense of themselves and a sense of connection in different places. And I think that for so long kind of the clinical setting and creativity they're thought of as separate uh, fields you know you don't really think creativity doesn't come to mind when you think of a clinic and what I would really like to see and I what I think this book contributes towards is pushing up against that kind of thing that keeps them separate that why can't we have you know, uh, disrupt the clinic through creative methods um, and not just having a poet in residence or something, but really exploring a person's creative life, that they have a creative life. And that might be going to the gym. It can be any way that we move our bodies or, or you know, engage and connect with the world. But I just, yeah, hope that people can think about recovery from depression as as a creative process of forming connections and, and being part of the world. You know, it doesn't always have to be about not feeling bad either. Sometimes it could be about, 
you might still feel sad or angry. You know, for women, it's like, oh, well, you can't be angry. So, you know, finding spaces where you can be angry or you can be sad, but you can feel connected and flourishing in that. And that aspect of sport, Adele, this is, of course, your expertise, but are we, have we improved here? This woman that Simone was speaking of who hadn't moved for 40 years, has society improved? Are women able to access sport and these facilities a bit more easily now? I, I think it's definitely improved, and I, I have noticed some gyms being really careful about their the images they're using, for example, in representing. Like, there's definite improvements but sometimes like the culture of fitness is still uh, very I guess rigid you know there's still room for improvement even though we talk about not focusing on weight for example like you know you want people to be exercising for the way that it makes them feel rather than having a number on the scale but we're still really body obsessed as a society despite progress. And does this bring us to a good point to discuss your term, the vital politics, really? What what do you mean by that, that this is sort of part of the title of the book and something that you talk about in the feminism of, of the book? I think we are trying to bring the body back into our feminist politics of thinking about the personal is political and understanding mental health as embodied experience and, of course, our well-being as embodied so if we start by thinking about the vitality of embodiment and that sense of aliveness, that's a different starting point than, say, a diagnostic criteria. And it helps us think about the importance of affect and emotion as sociocultural as well as psychological and biological. So we really want to come back to that notion of the not, that if we understand experience in its complexity, we have to think about how these things interact. So it's not simply an individual problem. We have to think about the individual as they're shaped by all these forces. And that then helps us kind of think more broadly about all the spaces and policies and media coverage and all of those sites in which we can intervene and we can change the story. We can bring gender perspectives in. We can look at how we can provide services differently, how we tell stories differently. So we start to affect change in different ways at those points of connection where you know, you've got a therapeutic focus, but why can't we bring in women's understandings and feminist perspectives into that space? Or in the fitness and sport area, you know, what is it about gender equity that would help improve and their understanding of mental health, not just active bodies? So bringing together, understanding individual experiences as always knotty problems. So we have this notion of public feelings being recognised in there as socio-political, not just individual. Because well-being has become such a, a trendy word now. But it sounds like you're really getting to the point that this is not just an individual pursuit. Yeah, it's definitely not just an individual pursuit. I think any approach to dealing with emotional distress or those bad feelings that doesn't take into account the social, cultural uh, the broader conditions is not going to make uh, any lasting change. Like, yeah, I can change my thought process. I can tell myself that feelings are not facts or how real is it? So, you know, I can challenge my thinking, but if I'm living in a world where these 
you know, these conditions are pressing up against me. They're restricting me in certain ways. I'm exhausted. There are all these other factors. There are hormones. There are so many things that make up what a person is that's connected to everything else. So I don't think that if we only take that individual approach, it seems to be almost in a way exacerbating things. It's like a pressure cooker, I think. It's more like we're not addressing the actual kind of causes and a way of living that may be our way of living in terms of hypercapitalism and neoliberalism. And I mean, we got so much kind of hate at the moment in the world. Like we saw that young boy who was murdered. These are race crimes, like hate crimes. We're living in this polarized world. So how can people not have bad feelings when you're living in a world like that? So trying to open that out, like Simone said, we're going to crack that open through this kind of sense of aliveness and creativity that, yeah, life is more than is sometimes acknowledged. And how can we write about that? Because as you say, treating it individually, it would only make women feel more isolated and it does make it worse. But that brings us to we're going to look at the broader aspects of recovery per se. What implications does that have, do you think, Simone? Yeah, I think there's some really great curly questions there to think about because the shift in discourse towards recovery is a positive move away from talking about mental ill health and people never being able to change, which wasn't that long ago that those assumptions drove our thinking. So we're opening up this question of recovery, but we don't want to just buy into it as a kind of you know, neoliberal life hack, hashtag mindfulness will solve everything. (laughs) This is not what we're talking about at all. So we do need to understand the way in which the kinds of policies and service provision and funding that needs to go into rethinking how we do things needs to have that gendered lens that's currently missing in the majority of our services. But you can see great examples in women's health services and you can see some great examples in policies are focusing on women's sport, for example, or in the arts too. So there are good practices out there and it's about how we build that knowledge base, continue to do more research to amplify the voices of diverse range of of women and gender diverse people and really look at the way we can start to transform some of those systems. But thinking at different levels, you know, it is overwhelming when you start to think about, okay, we need to change the whole society. We've been (laughs) talking about that as feminists for a long time. We'll continue to. But what can we intervene in? You know, where are some of those points of conversations where we can say, right, we need budget investment in this? And, you know, we are seeing that conversation happening more around violence prevention. Big issue, really key in terms of women's mental health. So where we can find those knotty problems coming together around political issues that are gaining traction, great. We need to be really moving those conversations forward and doing more research in that space as well. And we do a lot of work in sport as a specific area where we might be able to disrupt the ways that we think about sport and how it's managed to have gender, a gendered perspective in there. And there is this emphasis coming into sport around mental health. You know, there's more acknowledgement about the role of sport in supporting positive mental health, but also mental health challenges for elite athletes. And, you know, we're talking about it more. So I think it's a good opportunity to try and bring this vital politics to the discussion that it's not just an individual problem. Sport's not the cure for mental health challenges. Sometimes it can be the cause as well. So 
how do we think productively about this tension that sometimes something that is seemingly good for us ends up being bad and sometimes something that seems really bad can end up being really good. So just trying to suspend judgment around this notion of, of goodness, which I think is attached to these neoliberal ideas of, you know, the good citizen and this moralistic idea of the kind of hero in the world, just having no issues, just a self-made person that somehow being able to not feel depression or not have hardships. I mean, who is that person, right? That's what, oh yeah, it's like, who is this normal person or who is this neurotypical person? Now we're talking about neurodiversity. I'm always like, can can I just get introduced to some neurotypical person, please? Because what are they like? <laughs> and acknowledging that multifaceted approach, that mm. it, maybe it's not just going to the doctor and getting a script for whatever mm. antidepressant, that, uh, that they need to look at that more broadly as well as part of treatment options. Yeah, and we're seeing that conversation starting to happen in Australia around well-being and budgets. Uh, we're already seeing New Zealand and other countries looking at that more closely. You know, how do we think about funding these services? And we won't see change unless we see the thinking shift. So that's our job as researchers is to try and have these conversations and do the research to enable a broader conversation about what might be possible and how we could do things differently. Enable different kinds of women and gender diverse people to experiment with their own stories and I guess cutting it. You know, we make particular cuts in the stories that we tell. What what do we choose to highlight? What do we emphasise? And poetry is a great way of allowing someone to experiment with that. Like, what if I tell this story as this is the lead? Or what if I emphasize this? Or what if I choose this metaphor to express that feeling and to see what it does? You know, it can be really exciting. And yeah, I just think there are a lot of possibilities. There are challenges because of the scale that we're looking at, I think. Because, you know, you might meet a great GP who's who's really all about connection Yes, they might suggest medication, but you feel like you're heard because they're just somebody who can listen and connect with, with the individual. They're not putting these gendered layers or, or, or rushing you. But then to have every single doctor you come across be like that, it's difficult. It's not just a workforce training issue. It's We're living in extraordinary times with huge populations and, yeah, we're just hopefully more investment in taking care of each other and this community. Well, thank you for bringing this to our attention and for for taking such a creative approach with detailing your findings. I think the poems are really quite fascinating. As well as poems, we also have uh, some other things that we did. Mm. We tried to kind of trouble this idea of feminist memos. I think they're pretty funny too, where... We use, we looked at feminist humor and the ways that women use humor to subvert and to cope and create other futures for themselves. We really wanted to bring feminist humor into rethinking recovery because I think it's really powerful when you put women's experiences into a, a creative context. So here's an example of a memo that we wrote. So this kind of thinking about memos that we'd be sending out to a health service or beyond and this one is memo inadequate gender sensitive professional practice by male psychiatrists issue mental health services impede recovery response so i go and see him about once a month really just to stay on my pension not because he's a good psychiatrist not because he's really helping me at all and i ask her 
he doesn't do a lot of therapy work then? And she says, no, he talks a lot about himself. You know, I'm still trying to work out if it's his method of counselling. <laughs> Fenella, age 55. So women were experiencing, you know, seeking help and receiving all kinds of unhelpful responses in the clinical context. And humour was a way in which they were at least able to try and manage that paradox because it was so stark into the gender dynamics. But we also have a number of poems and accounts and a screenplay in here as well where we kind of put women's experience of recovery and their different practices into dialogue. So really trying to make it kind of more readable and accessible alongside the the theoretical work that we've been doing. There's also blog posts where we create this notion of people posting on their blogs about the creative and active ways that recovery is growing into their lives. Yeah, and there's one that I really remember from doing the interview with, with Anya, who's in her 30s, and she'd really struggled with depression and anxiety for, for a long time in her life and, and drug addiction as well, and um, it really affected her work. She was talking about, surprisingly, that she felt that the best thing that helped her recovery was travel and photography. And it just came out of the blue. She said, I feel, and we've kind of put this into a blog, I know if I've got a ticket to go overseas, I'm happy. I don't even have to be overseas. There's the ticket, okay? I went to India in December. I bought the ticket in July. I was happy for months. My family were consummate travellers. And I've found that without any stress whatsoever, I can pick up a bag and be on the other side of the world tomorrow. I have no worries about that. I don't feel there's any risk. I have complete confidence and control about as if something isn't working, it's okay. I can cope with it somehow. I know how to cope with it. And I've traveled to really challenging places where a lot of people wouldn't feel very comfortable. And I've been cautioned about it by several people. And I've dealt with a lot of strange situations and everything is invigorating. It's the exploration or it's sort of inspiration, the capacity to adapt to something new as well. And I spend a lot of my time and money on taking photographs of this experience. And so it's really creative. It takes me there. I don't buy much. I just take photographs and I experience cultures. So in this little vignette, it was so surprising because so much of our everyday life had been governed by fear and risk. But going, <laughs> travelling around the world was a very brave thing to do. And it was a practice that just took her into a completely different sense of self, those relationships with places and culture. So I think that was a, a real moment for me for just thinking about how recovery practices can be very unexpected and different and we should not be prescribing anything particular for someone, but we should create opportunities for them to explore what, how to kind of recreate themselves in relation to the everyday practice in their lives. And it really vividly brings home to me, I think, just reframing emotion, which traditionally has been seen as, you know, sort of one of, of the female weakness in a way that we're just mm. far too emotional. But in fact, that this can be a really important asset in the professional world, in, in your recovery, like to acknowledge that emotion. I think that's a great point, Ness. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is about recognising how important affect and emotion are in our, all aspects of our lives and in knowledge production. So, how we come to know things, how we learn to be human beings, how we affect change, 
emotion is part of all of that and it's codified in certain ways for women and that's dangerous. You know, that you have to be nice and pleasing and pleasant and smile a lot and that can be very oppressive. So, yeah, let's open up what emotions are and what they do and then also about how they're taken seriously in medical contexts and in education contexts and policy contexts because fundamentally I think that's something we've recognised through COVID is that people want a sense of belonging, that social isolation and disconnection is incredibly damaging and that we need to find different ways to support people's emotional well-being. So thank you once again for taking this fantastic creative approach, something that I find incredibly refreshing in academia, wonderful, and I think really exposes such interesting aspects of depression that really have not been talked about enough in our society. What should people do if they want to find out more about what you're doing in this space? Well, if they're interested to find out more, they can have a look at SAGE at Griffiths, which is Sport and Gender Equity at Griffiths, which is where Simone and I and other colleagues doing work around sport and gender equity post our research. So you can find our contacts there. You can follow us both on Twitter and get in touch if you're interested in pursuing research. If you've done your honours and you're looking at PhD work, we're always interested in feminist work in this space that we can continue to grow and disrupt the status quo. And our website, which will be more focused around mental health and wellbeing, will be up and running in the near future. (laughs) And we will be putting some of these poems and collection of creative work up on there to read and listen. Wonderful. And making them more accessible for all, essentially, in in all of our path to recovery. Yes, that's right. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card today. Thanks, Nance. Thank you, Nance. Thanks to Professor Simone Fulliger and Dr. Adele Pavlidis for exploring the gender implications of depression and recovery on this episode of The Gender Card. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.